You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. If you're a business owner or in human resources or responsible for human resources at your company, you're going to want to hear this episode of Labor Relations Radio. But before I get to our guest today, I'd like to share a couple things with you that will help set the stage, if you will, for today's guest. Here's the first thing. I've been following union-related news for about as long as I've been involved with unions and labor relations, which is going on four decades. And that was even before the internet, kids. But for the last 15 years or so, I've been not only following union-related news, I've written hundreds of posts and articles on a variety of websites, including my own, about labor unions. However, since launching laborunionnews.com in January, we've posted over 2,000 hand-curated, categorized, and archived news stories on that website. And we send out the Morning News Digest every morning. So I tell you this to lead to my next point. Again, if you're a business owner or in human resources, but not well-versed on the National Labor Relations Act and its nuances, a large part of the reason I started Labor Relations Radio was to provide listeners with a variety of guests on both sides of the aisle when I can find the others on the other side of the aisle uh, with information that people can learn from. And this is really just an informational and educational podcast. I do this because, quite frankly, I could sit at a microphone and tell you what I think is important or interesting, uh, but having other people on to educate you or to provide information to you is to me more interesting. The third thing I wanted to share with you is over the course of my career, I've always been a sponge when it comes to labor issues. And I've also been really fortunate in finding people smarter than me to help build my knowledge base. So I tell you all these things to set the stage for our guest today. Late one night, about a week or so ago, as I was curating the articles for laborunionnews.com, and I'm not the only one that does it, by the way, but I do, I can go through articles very quickly and get the gist and, and post them where they need to go. Um, I came across an article written by an attorney, and the article was entitled NLRB GCs, which is General Counsel's Extreme Agenda on Display at ABA Midwinter Meeting. Now, if you're at all familiar with reading articles written by attorneys or legal writings, to read a headline like that using the term extreme is pretty unusual. Usually when you read articles written by attorneys, and no offense to my attorney friends out there, they're usually pretty vanilla um, or bland, if you will, when it comes to taking a position on anything. And that's generally for a reason. So the term extreme in a headline was, well, pretty unusual. So as I was reading the article, I noticed that I knew the attorney who wrote it. And as a result, it, it took a few days to arrange, but I asked him to come on and talk about his article and the National Labor Relations Board's 
general counsel's extreme agenda. Now, Bob Nagel is an employer-side labor and appointment attorney with the law firm Fox Rothschild in its Philadelphia office, and he represents an array of clients, including those in manufacturing, construction, healthcare, pharmaceutical, transportation, banking, retail, securities, and, ex- uh, and insurance brokerage industries. For employers facing traditional labor relations issues, Bob regularly provides strategic guidance in collective bargaining, arbitrations, union elections, and proceedings before the National Labor Relations Board. Now, as always, I'm going to provide the links to Bob's bio and his his article under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. I tell you this because as we recorded this episode yesterday afternoon, we got into some fairly wonky issues. However, again, if you're a business owner in human resources or responsible for human resources at your company, the things that are currently going on and coming out of Washington through the administration, through the National Labor Relations Board, OSHA, OLMS, all that sort of stuff, we're mostly focusing on the National Labor Relations Board, but the issues we covered are critically important to the viability of your relationship with your employees and your business. And as you'll gather by listening to Bob, he is a wealth of information. So without further ado, here's Bob Nagel. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Bob Nagel, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? Peter, I'm fantastic. How are you today? Good. So um, I reached out to you a couple weeks ago because you you did an article, um, and I'm going to read the headline and then a quote, which I think would be a great place for us to start. Um, and the the article headline was NLRB GC's extreme agenda on display at ABA midwinter meeting. And I thought those those interesting coming from an attorney and you've been a labor attorney for a number of years, right? Indeed I have. We're going on 25 years, Peter. Wow. Um, and, and then there's this in the very first paragraph there. Um, and I love the way you wrote this. It says, while the weather outside was balmy, management attorneys felt a distinct chill as members of the general counsel's office spoke about their views of the National Labor Relations Act and what it means for employers. So what I thought was we could start start this by talking about what it is you saw at the ABA meeting. Sure. Um, so, um just by way of background uh, for your listeners, the, the, the um, ABA obviously is the American Bar Association. And uh, within that um, large, very large, something on the order of, I think, you know, half million members or more, you know, there's, Peter, as you know, our country is grossly under-lawyered. I think there's only about a million or so lawyers in the country. Um, there is a, uh, a section uh, known as the Labor and Employment Law section, and then even, you know, further uh, down the taxonomy, uh, there's a group of practitioners who focus primarily on traditional labor law involving practice under the National Labor Relations Act, dealing with unions, collective bargaining. And every winter, um, uh, practitioners from both the, the management side and the union side uh, will gather usually, you know, somewhere warm. Uh, and and nice um, with members of the NLRB and the NLRB general counsel and their staff um, to really uh, kind of kibitz. Um, papers are presented, uh, topics are discussed, 
uh, arguments are had, um, or at least robust discussions are had. And um, it's really a, a good way, you know, for those who practice in this area to kind of make sure they're on top of the latest developments and, and also a chance to exchange views. And I think ostensibly, at some level, it's an opportunity for, for members of the bar to communicate their views to, to the regulators, right, which are the members of the NLRB and, and the general counsel. Um, so, you know, uh, as the saying goes, elections have consequences. Uh, president uh, Biden, when he was a candidate, promised to be the most pro-union president ever. Um, his appointments reflect that. Um, he has appointed two members of the National Labor Relations Board, um, as well as the general counsel, all of whom have uh, experience on the union side representing labor unions. Uh, the Jennifer, the uh, general counsel, uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, uh, most recently represented the Communications Workers of America during the Trump administration. Prior to that, she had a long uh, career uh, in different roles uh, at, at the board. Um, so she's now general counsel, you know, sometimes known as the top prosecutor uh, for the agency. And she really has a lot of um, control over the agenda in deciding what cases she wants to take up to the board and, um, you know, helping to sort of like shape the, the, the development of the law. Um, I, I will say um, with regard to uh, what, what she had to say and, and sort of what her office presented at the conference, um, it was, uh, they weren't necessarily breaking new ground, Peter, but, but what, what they were doing was sort of, you know, uh, fleshing out, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, reiterating, and in some cases, I think maybe amplifying a little bit um, policy initiatives that have been announced in various general counsel memoranda, uh, which, which have been issued uh, really um, since, since as early as uh, February of 2021, after President Biden took office, summarily fired Peter Robb who was the general counsel at the time, that had never been done before. He installed um, another NLRB lifer, Peter Sung Orr, as acting general counsel. And Mr. Orr authored a memorandum uh, covering uh, what we call protected concerted activity under the act. And, and that was uh, something that Mr. Orr spoke about at some length at the conference. That was, um, yeah, that was while he was acting GC, right? Correct. And then, Correct. and the um, and the protected concerted activity is uh, he was, they're applying that for non-union employees exercising their rights and expanding that to social activism. Is that yeah, yeah. So um, you know, I know you know uh, your your listeners should know. It's important to know that the National Labor Relations Act applies substantially to all private sector employers, and unless you're an airline or a railroad or, or FedEx, uh, you're you're covered by the National Labor Relations Act. And Section Seven of the Act is really the heart of the Act uh, that provides employees uh, with various rights. You know, the the kind of headline right that people think most about is the right to form or join labor organizations. But it goes well beyond that, and it, it gives employees the right to engage in um, protected concerted activity um, in, in sort of uh, implicit in the notion of, of, of if it's protected, it must be for mutual aid and protection. 
um, concerted, um, colloquially, I think we always understood concerted meant more than one, meaning two employees. But um, with, with this general counsel, that um, criteria, I would say, is sort of being sanded down uh, almost to, to, to irrelevance because they, they've come up with, um, and I shouldn't say they, this, this is not totally novel, um, but, you know, different general counsel have, have embraced the notion that individual employee action can be viewed as uh, inherently concerted um, if it pertains to subjects that are inherently of group concern or if uh, the employee is acting on the authority of a group of people or, or with their express support. With, within um, the workplace, though, right? Well, again, historically, you know, we, employers typically have, have sort of concerned themselves primarily with what employees are, are doing in the workplace. Um, the, the, the board, uh, for, for some time, this is not brand new, uh, for some time with court approval, uh, the labor board has recognized that employee activity outside the workplace uh, nevertheless could be viewed as, as protected by the NLRA if it had a clear nexus to the employee's own terms and conditions of employment. So for example, um, you know, if, if a couple of employees decide they want to attend uh, a rally, say, in support of a higher minimum wage, um, you know, that's not at work, right? Presumably employers not having it at, at their place of business, but maybe it's, you know, down in the city square, what have you, um, that would be viewed as a form of, of protected activity. Uh, so the activity physically doesn't necessarily have to occur in the workplace. Historically, though, it's been understood to at least relate to employees' concerns about their own terms and conditions of employment. Um, can, you know, that, that notion there's somewhat of a, there's a dotted line, at least the dotted line back to the workplace. Maybe that's an easier way to put it. Uh, yeah, I would say maybe, a, you know, a, a yes, a, a, a dotted line at, at, at least, you know, and, and so, you know, what, what uh, then acting general counsel Orr expressed in that first general counsel memorandum, which he talked about at length at the meeting, was the idea that, well, no, it's, it's not necessarily limited to, to a given employer's employees uh, engaging in activity relating to their own terms and conditions of employment, uh, it can pertain to other employees, meaning people that don't work for that company, but other, you know, folks who work for another company, you know, their terms and conditions of employment. And, and again, that in and of itself is, is not totally novel. There's, there's some, you know, support for that, you know, folks may recall, oh, 10, 15 years ago, um, you know, there was, there was some energy and activity around uh, enforcement of the immigration laws, and and um, right. I, it might have been INS then, maybe it was ICE. You know, raids and, and meatpacking facilities, and there was a concern, you know, expressed by uh, workers, you know, at at uh, around the country, frankly, that you know, hey, uh, you know, th this this could be us. We don't we're, we're we're concerned about you know this aggressive enforcement of the immigration laws, and and I think the general consensus was. That yeah, that that's protected, even if it's not specifically related to their own workplace. It's an expression of support for other workers who are being affected. Um, so so that again is not you know completely uh, new, made made from whole cloth. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bob. That was um, during the Bush era, right? That was I the Bush that, NLRB that that yeah. said, "Be careful on doing something to retaliate against employees if they're engaging in immigration march, uh, right, uh, rights right. marches." 
I think you're absolutely correct. I think it was in the uh, George W. Bush administration, 2004, 2005. This is way before Trump, right? People yeah. hear immigration, they assume it's Trump. Uh, this this is before Trump. Um, Peter, picking up on, on um, a thread you noted earlier, though, uh, and what I mentioned in the article is um, is is now Deputy General Counsel or uh, his his focus on. Um, uh, social and and political uh, causes and and what he certainly views as employees' rights to um, or or I would say the sort of extension of the uh, Section Seven umbrella to employees' uh, activities, you know, speech actions pertaining to broader uh, social or political issues, and and probably the best example of that is um, the issuance of, com- of, of a complaint against Home Depot in one case and against Whole Foods Markets in another case relating to employees' uh, expression of support for Black Lives Matter um, in, in the workplace on work time. Right. And those, I think that, uh, at least the Whole Foods one was um, wearing buttons on their their collars or their uniforms, right? I, I believe that's right. Um, that was a case uh, from from somewhere out west. I don't recall exactly where, but several associates um, uh, had been wearing buttons. Um, Whole Foods had a uh, dress code um, that prohibited employees from wearing buttons um, of of that nature, um, meaning not Whole Foods buttons. Um, uh, I should note, um, you know, the labor board has held with with court approval that um, employees do have a right to wear union buttons or union insignia um, in, in most circumstances, notwithstanding uh, 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 you know, a dress code that on its face might prohibit the wearing of union buttons. I think that the test the, the board has announced over the years with court approval is in, unless it's, it's so obtrusive or so large as to really distract or distort um, you know, the uniform, uh, even even in workplace, you know, even on work time, there are cases involving servers at restaurants where if they're wearing a smock or an apron and they've got a little, you know, Unite Here pin up on, a, on an apron strap, um, employers can't sort of outlaw that or prohibit employees from doing that. What is new uh, in the Whole Foods case and now more recently in the Home Depot cases is the general counsel sort of uh, putting an expression of support for Black Lives Matter or that insignia on the same level as a, as a union pin, um, which to my knowledge is new. But the the logic being the dotted line going back to things that it could affect us in the workplace. Well, and that's support of. right. And, and now maybe the, the dotted line is maybe the dots are fainter and farther between, right? right? And, and harder to discern. Um, yeah, I should note, you know, these cases are of public record, right? The complaints are, are, are available on the NLRB website at nlrb.gov. Uh, if you know where to look, you can find uh, the briefs um, uh, that have been filed in each case. I read the, the papers in the Home Depot case, uh, and Home Depot has um, filed a motion to dismiss the complaint against it on First Amendment grounds, um, I maybe I should provide a little background on, on the Home Depot case before I, I get into the weeds on the law. In, in that case, um, a store associate had written BLM on his apron. You know, anybody who's been to Home Depot knows you see the orange apron, right? It's 
<laughs> about right. as much a part of a, a corporate uniform as as uh, as as you know any of us are, are likely to see, given the number of stores, number of associates, uh, and that's part of the brand, right? That's part of the uniforms. That orange smock. Um, Home Depot has a uh, uniform dress code uh, that allows uh, employees to wear pins that might relate to their particular specialty. Like, hey, ask me about plumbing. I'm a plumber. Uh, ask me about carpentry. You know, maybe a pin with a saw or something like that. But uh, their dress code uh, did not uh, permit, um, uh, uh, you know, insignia for for political or, or social organizations. You know, whether it's a you know elephant pin for the Republican Party or uh, MAGA pin, presumably, or or uh, uh, you know pin in support of Black Lives Matter or, or any other sort of outside organization. Um, Girl, so Scout, in, Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts or, or presume right presume so so in in that case uh, it was alleged in the complaint that a store associate had written BLM just the initials BLM on his apron and he was informed that that uh, was not permitted by the uniform dress code that he was effectively you know out of uniform which he could not be on work time and he was asked to uh, change his apron you know put on a, a different apron that didn't have that he declined. Um, he was, uh, after some discussion, according to the papers, um, sent home with pay, uh, and then um, he had ended up resigning uh, from the company. And um, somebody, I don't recall if it was him or somebody acting on his behalf, filed an unfair labor practice charge, alleging that the policy, Home Depot's uniform dress code, uh, itself violated the act insofar as it prohibited employees from expressing uh, their support for the Black Lives Matter organization. And getting back to your, your dotted line metaphor, uh, the general counsel reasoned that uh, an expression of support for BLM was tantamount to opposing discrimination in the workplace. Uh, and that ex opposing discrimination in the workplace in the vernacular of the NLRB is inherently concerted activity, even if it's only one person doing it. Um, workplace discrimination clearly is a term and condition of employment. I wouldn't argue that. Nobody, no, no person of good faith would contend that workplace discrimination is, is not a term and condition of employment, that employees acting together or even individually have the right to talk about and, and agitate around. Uh, no, no management side lawyer would contend that employees don't have the right to oppose workplace discrimination. I think it, it requires at least a bit of a leap to conflate that with, well, the expression of support for BLM is tantamount to opposing workplace discrimination. I think if we're talking about the BLM organization, I think that organization takes stands on a lot of issues uh, separate and apart from, from discrimination in the workplace. Um, but that was the position of the general counsel and Home Depot filed what I thought was a, a very uh, well, well articulated argument that, um, compel, that, that it, it's tantamount to compelled speech that that for Home Depot to have to permit this um, uh, expression of support for, for an outside organization, a third-party organization, um, was tantamount to compelled speech. Uh, they own the smock. Um, uh, they had a uniform dress code. I don't, 
I don't believe, at least it's not clear from the papers, that there was that there was any evidence that they were applying that policy in a discriminatory manner. Rather, the general counsel's theory was that policy is illegal on its face, um, and it has to go. So um, there's a motion to dismiss pending before the administrative law judge right now. Um, the general counsel filed an opposition to that motion, sort of poo-pooing uh, the constitutional arguments and, and the First Amendment arguments. And uh, we will have to see how the administrative law judge rules on that. Uh, the takeaway you know, for uh, practitioners and employers, HR professionals, is to be on notice uh, that the NLRB views uh, expression of support for the BL for BLM, you know, the organization or the cause, um, as as basically absolutely protected under the statute, and you know the concern that that I have as a management advocate is, you know, what is where I where's the limiting principle, right? That, that's my question. Is okay. So if the NLRB says. And just moving BLM aside for a second, you you now have to allow employees to wear what could be construed as political types of messages um, that could ostensibly lead back to the workplace. You know, could that be the ACLU or any other group out there? Where is that line? Hard to say, Peter. Um, not not a hundred percent sure that there is sort of. Um, you know, uh, an objectively identifiable line. And uh, part of the reason I, I say that is during his remarks, Mr. Orr uh, stated stated um, that, that, you know, in his view, you know, we're always talking about terms and conditions of employment, right? Employees have the right to uh, talk about uh, and engage in certain protect protest activities with regard to to their terms and conditions of employment, perhaps other employees' terms and conditions of employment. Now, again, we're getting into, well, broader sort of societal, political, you know, does there at least need to be a dotted line back to their terms and conditions somehow, some articulable basis? Mr. Orr expressed the view that, that, well, hey, you know, if employees are talking about it at work, by definition, it's, it's work-related, right? So because employees are talking about it at work, they've brought it into the workplace, particularly if the employees want their employer, you know, to to take some action or cease taking some action that that touches um, on on this concern. Yeah, and I can. That's where you start to say, "Whoa!" So really, you know, the, the limiting principle is is the is the creativity and willingness of employees themselves, whatever they want to talk about. That's where we draw the line. Well, you mentioned kind of at the outset of this, um, you know, wearing, quote unquote, political pins, but I could see one that could absolutely go right back to the workplace. Like if some worker wore an America first shirt or, or a pin, right, or scratched America first on there, which could be offensive to some, um, or, you know, the MAGA argument, you know, which is make America great again. Yeah, that's got way big political connotations for a lot of people, yet, you know, some would argue, well, that's not, you know, that's to keep our jobs from being outsourced. Well, well, that's right. And again, um, you know, you could, you know, I, I think, and, and forget about sort of like which side of the spectrum, you know, you're, 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 right. you're looking at, right. But, 
you know, uh, what about Democratic Socialists of America? Right. Um, I'm sure somewhere in their platform they're advocating for a higher minimum wage and more rights for working people and you know, we need to level the playing field. They're behind the PRO Act, right? So that clearly, that to me is a pretty bright dotted line right back to the yeah. workplace. Yeah. Now, Peter, what, what's also important to recognize, though, and Home Depot really emphasized this in, in their, their motion to dismiss, is the idea that, you know, doesn't the employer, shouldn't the employer be considered to take into account the, the considerations of its other employees who may not agree with the sentiments being expressed, um, and the customers, right? So, you know, Home Depot are argued those points pretty hard that, you know, that they, they sort of feel, you know, they articulated like, you know, we, we, if we, we, we feel that we have the right to not allow our employees to sort of inject politics or these sort of like external social uh, issues in, into the workplace, um, recognizing that not everybody, you know, at, at a given workplace will, will, you know, come down on the same side of, of uh, certainly of, you know, political things like MAGA or, or Democratic Socialists of America. Um, and, you know, that may be a turnoff to our customers. You know, that's part of the reason these big national chains, and not just the big national chains, a lot of businesses with customer-facing employees um, have dress codes, have uniform policies that don't allow employees to just sort of, uh, you know, express, you know, whatever they want to express for fear of alienating the customers. The LRB appears to pay that no heed whatsoever. Um, and that, you know, if, if two or more employees think it's important and want to express themselves about it at work, they have a right to do that. Right. So let me, um, as I know we wanted to talk about a couple other things as well, let me ask you, so right now it's at the, um, the administrative law judge heard it, or where, where is it going from here? So in, in Home Depot, um, there, there's a motion to dismiss uh, that, that Home Depot filed um, that's pending before the administrative law judge. Um, uh, that was, frankly, I think a pretty creative and aggressive move by Home Depot. I, I uh, tip my cap. Um, to their attorneys um, for, for um, making that argument at this stage. It's a constitutional argument. It's a First Amendment argument. Um, the, the administrative law judge will have to rule on that. Um, from there, um, frankly, I, I don't know if he denies it, if, if Home Depot would have a right to, what, to take what lawyers call interlocutory appeal up to the full board for ruling on the motion to dismiss, or if they would then proceed to litigate the merits of the case and uh, and and the constitution, if they if Home Depot were to lose at trial before the administrative law judge, you know whether then you know when they the case would go from the administrative law judge to the labor board, if if whichever side lost, elected to to take it to the labor board. From there, it would go uh, if the losing party were still aggrieved, at least if it were the employer, the employer would have the right to take the case up to a circuit court of appeals. Um, where presumably the judges might be a little, you know, more well-versed and hopefully sympathetic to the First Amendment arguments. Whether there's some sort of, you know, dotted line, you know, that they could use to get to district court or, or a circuit court uh, before a resolution on the merits of the case, I don't know. So in, in the meantime, um, employers should be wary of enforcing their non-political bans 
or their bans on political speech in the workplace or I, in, a, in a word yes okay so um the other thing you had mentioned in the article was the joy silk mills efforts that are being made for lack of a better term um and I, it seems to be that we're seeing some of that coming to fruition now do you want to talk about that sure so um you know, first, it's it's important to recognize, you know, just despite the name, you know, Joy Silk Mills is is not a um, you know synthetic uh, non dairy coffee sweetener. It actually refers to a, an NLRB case uh, from the 1940s. Um, I believe it was a furniture manufacturer down in North Carolina, and uh, that that case um, stood for the proposition at the time that there were circumstances where an employer could be compelled to recognize a union simply on the basis of um, a card, you know, a card majority or some other um, demonstration of majority support by the union uh, short of an NLRB secret ballot election. Um, that legal standard obtained for, uh, I want to say, about 25 years or so, uh, maybe 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 20 years or so um, until late 60s, early 70s, in a case that went up to the Supreme Court, the board at oral argument in response to a question from one of the justices actually stated it is it is not the policy or position of the labor board um, that an employer can be compelled to recognize um, a union on the basis of, of a majority um, absent um, Commission of Egregious Unfair Labor Practices, which, which takes you down another path called Gissel Packaging or Gissel Packing Corporation, right. which, which is different. Um, so, so with that, with that um, concession, frankly, at argument, um, since that time um, until right about now, uh, the, the NLRB General Counsel had not taken the position that employers could be compelled to recognize a union simply on the basis of, of a card majority uh, or some other you know demonstration of majority support that employers effectively had the right to to refuse to recognize the union on that basis and and say look if you think you've got a majority why don't you file a petition with the labor board um, or we'll file a petition with the labor board so you know i've been practicing for about 25 years as i mentioned at the outset and it's always been the case um, uh, it's always been the practice, frankly, I think it's sort of universally accepted best practice on the management side that in most instances, um, you know, you, you tell your client, your employer client, don't look at the cards, even if they claim to have, you know, 100% of the employees who sign cards, you don't want to look at those cards. You say, if you think you've got a majority, you're welcome to test it at the NLRB. And that starts the NLRB's uh, election machinery uh, you know, the NLRB itself has referred to its secret ballot election as sort of the gold standard for determining whether uh, a union enjoys majority support and whether that is truly the free, uncoerced choice of the employees um, on the matter of, of union representation. So historically, you know, the board has evinced a, a huge bias in favor of, yeah, we want we want to resolve representation questions with, with a secret ballot election. Um, not so for this general counsel. Um, this general counsel, and again, this was covered in a, in a memo that she issued, actually a couple of memos that she issued in the fall of 2021. Uh, she articulated and, and sort of put the word out 
to the regional offices that um, she she is actively considering reviving the Joyce Silk Mills doctrine and that um, regions should send to her cases involving uh, uh, circumstances that might support the, the um, invocation of that doctrine, which would be a, a case where a representation case where an where a union claimed to have majority status offered to show the, the cards or the other expression of majority support to the employer and the employer refused to, to, to recognize the union without a good faith basis for doing so. That, that was the August 12th memo that she articulated a whole bunch of things. And that, that was the one paragraph, like on page seven or something that, um, she referenced that and it, it slipped by a lot of people. Yeah. And, it didn't slip by me. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, other, other attentive, I can't claim to be the only one, of course. Um, she, she referenced it in another memo, um, issued on or about that time. I, I don't recall the number. It might've been uh, 21-07. Um, but, but really, you know, the, 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 the key sort of um, takeaway or, or, or point for um, management to focus on here is, um, you know, her, her position seems to be that it would be an unfair labor practice for an employer to refuse to recognize a union that demonstrates majority support unless the employer has a good faith doubt as to the union's majority support or if the union, I'm sorry, if the employer committed unfair labor practices um, subsequent to the union's offer to demonstrate its majority support. And I will tell you, you know, there's, there's a lot of, still a lot of discussion and questions that frankly weren't very clearly answered at this midwinter meeting about, you know, wait a minute, does the employer have to commit unfair labor practices to sort of trigger this this card check obligation or, or trigger a legal obligation to be bound if the union has majority support or or even in the absence of of such unfair labor practices if the employer is not able to articulate a good faith doubt as to the union's majority status is 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 that enough? Um, not entirely clear. Part of what makes it unclear is that um, in the memoranda and at the conference, uh, General Counsel Abruzzo articulated, you know, one of the, in her view, the, the prime policy rationale for, for reviving Joy Silk Mills is the idea that, in her view, employers will frequently use the time between um, uh, the, the union obtaining majority support, filing a petition with the NLRB, and the three or four or five or six weeks, however long it may be, between you know those early events and the actual casting of ballots by by the employees, in Ms. Abruzzo's view, employers use that time to threaten, coerce, and restrain employees, commit unfair labor practices, and otherwise kind of taint um, the election. Uh, why why wouldn't that be solved through um, the typical Gissel bargaining order? Well, very fair question, and and the short answer to that is. Um, not all uh, employer unfair labor practices committed in the course of an organizing campaign or, or in the critical period after a petition has been filed, but before an election actually takes place, not all of those unfair labor practices rise to the level required to support a Gissel bargaining order. In fact, very few of them do. Um, Gissel, a, a, to, to get a Gissel bargaining order requires uh, what they call hallmark unfair labor practices uh, and the NLRB has to conclude 
after a hearing that it would be impossible or at the very least extremely impractical to conduct a fair rerun election in any kind of reasonable time. In other words, the, the stench of the unfair labor practices is so great that it, it can't be dispelled in, in a manner that would allow you to conduct a fair rerun election. Peter, most of the time when employers commit unfair labor practices during a campaign, most of the time the remedy is a rerun election. Right. Um, this general counsel doesn't like that. Um, it, my interpretation of, of her view is that she almost thinks that that's sort of gaming the system and, and she does not want to sort of be a party to, to those games. Well, the hallmark violations that you're talking about are typically um, the firing of union supporters, the threats of plant closure, things like that, right? That's right. Um, would it not be, I'm just kind of processing this, would it not make more sense to um, lower the bar a little bit? Excellent question. Um, not, I, in, not in I, her I, view. I, I think, I think uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, look, I, I think if you kind of framed it, you know, to the management bar as a choice between kind of like lowering the bar uh, for, for the imposition of, of a Gissel bargaining order or going down this path of reviving Joyce Silk Mills, if, if that was really the choice, I think we'd probably swallow hard and grudgingly assent to uh, – to, to lowering the bar on on, on a Gissel bargaining order, uh, that that certainly would not be our first choice. If if there were more choices, and I should also note that um, the the Gissel packing case itself went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and um, you know that that body of of law I think is sufficiently uh, defined in board jurisprudence as affirmed by the courts of appeals and even the U.S. Supreme Court that the board may have reluctance uh, from a stare decisis standpoint in, in, in terms of trying to kind of rewrite that standard or lower that standard. I think they may think they have an easier lift with reviving Joyce Silk Mills. A what standpoint? Uh, stare decisis refers <laughs> okay. to uh, the honoring of precedent and, and not trying to rewrite precedent. That's why I never went to law school. <laughs> um, so let me... Let me just say for people listening, what we're talking about is backdoor card check. It's basically card check through Absolutely. a different system. Absolutely. Um, and the the other question with this related to this is, so if they, and the way it's been explained to me is essentially um, union presents or tries to present a majority of cards is they give the employer a demand letter and the employer is expected to voluntarily recognize they don't. They file an unfair labor practice charge, which I think is what is happening right now at this coffee company up in, not Starbucks, it's a different one, uh, Great Lakes Coffee, I think, up in uh, Detroit. And they file a charge against the employer for, for refusing to recognize the union. And then unless the employer has good faith doubt and can prove it's good faith doubt that the union doesn't have a majority status, the board is going to say, yep, you're unionized. So approximately. Yes, Peter, I think, I think you've um, characterized it correctly. And, and to that point, um, you know, I, I think uh, union lawyers are, are, you know, advising their union clients that that's exactly what they should do is, is, and let's be honest. I mean, anybody who's been through through a union organizing campaign would know that you know unions don't ask for recognition if they don't have majority support. You know, typically right. they have a pretty 
substantial majority, they like to have a cushion, you know, before they file that petition with the labor board. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the approach that you will see unions increasingly uh, use, offer to show the cards, um, and, and, and then sort of, you know, you've got a, a ready-made unfair labor practice if, if the election doesn't go your way, if you even elect to file for an election. Okay, so let's process this out a little bit. So assume the board says with some ABC company out there, right, you should have recognized the union. Um, we're giving you this bargaining order under Joy Silk. The employer at that point is either going to have to somehow fight it, refuse to bargain, or accept the bargaining, right? So if they refuse to bargain, then the GC will go to a federal court to get an injunction, right? 10J injunction? Well, that's, Peter, that's actually an excellent point because historically in, in those cases, um, we call those test of certification cases where if an employer, usually in a context where it loses an election, you know, maybe there were disputed votes, he lost by a couple and, and you know, the employer felt that certain employees were allowed to vote who shouldn't have been, sometimes see that with regard to whether someone's a supervisor or not. Um, you know, the, if the employer thinks that um, the, the union ought not to have been certified as the bargaining rep, the employer will refuse to bargain um, to test the certification. You know, the union will file an 885 unfair labor practice charge, refusal to bargain. Um, the NLRB will issue a complaint. And um, usually there's sort of summary proceedings at, at an administrative law judge level. And then it goes up to a court of appeals. You know, the employer in those cases is, is driving the bus. Um, and, and to your point, though, this general counsel has expressed a, a zealous support for seeking interim injunctive relief in the district courts, as she is empowered to do under Section 10J of the National Labor Relations Act. That was a whole other conference session that I didn't even attend. But, you know, this general counsel is, has put us all on notice that she intends to use injunctive proceedings under Section 10J uh, like, like we've never seen before. So that's probably how it would go down in, in the circumstance that you described. She would go to district court to try to get an interim order compelling the employer to recognize and bargain with the union. So then if it, if it goes to a federal court, um, and let's presume for a second the employer in that whatever case it would be loses at the federal court, then the next bite at the apple would be the Supreme Court? Well, Peter, <laughs> for somebody who didn't go to law school, you're sure asking a lot of tricky civil procedure questions. Oh, um, I have more. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> what time is it? Um, so um, not not entirely clear, and, and here's why. First of all, um, the, the general counsel herself does not actually make the law. You know, she does not decide what, what, the, what the law is um, under, under the National Labor Relations Act. She can steer the cases to, to, the, to the board members, the five you know, board members in D.C., three, three Democrats, two Republicans right now, um, given that she's of the same party as the majority of the board members, including two of whom were appointed by President Biden and have union backgrounds. Um, she may, you know, feel like that they're likely to be receptive to her arguments in terms of what rule they ought to adopt. But I, I think anyway, 
you know, they still need a case where the NLRB, a, a majority of the board members actually say, yes, we hereby adopt Joy Silk Mills or, or some derivation of Joy Silk Mills in compelling employers to recognize uh, a union on the basis of a card majority. Um, you know, that, 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 that hasn't happened yet. Right. Joy Silk Mills is, is not current law. Um, I think it's coming. I, I don't think there was anybody at that conference who doesn't think it's coming. I think there are still, you know, some some deta- important details, frankly, that, that will need to be addressed, such as, you know, what does an employer have to show to demonstrate it had a good faith doubt as to the union's majority status? For that matter, is it the employer's duty to show that it had a good faith doubt, or does the government have to show that it did not have a good faith doubt? You know, the allocation of the burden of proof, you know, could be important. Um, how might the employer demonstrate that it has a good faith doubt? We, we all know, maybe we don't all know, but you know, anybody who's, who's practiced in this area knows that during a campaign, an employer can't just run around asking employees, hey, did you sign a card? Do you like the union? Right. Are you against the union? There are real limits on the questions you know, that employers can even ask employees. So there's a, a real question on our side about, well, how would the employer even get the facts to support that good faith doubt? Yeah, so that poses an interesting question because let's, and I've asked this before of a mutual acquaintance of ours or friend. Um, So hypothetically, you're an employer and you get presented with this demand letter that, um, and the labor board at some point rules that you've been unionized. But in between all of that, you've got this letter stating that a majority of employees have signed authorization cards and you need to somehow show good faith doubt. So you hold a meeting with your employees and you say, you know, hey, just to let you know, you are basically all unionized now based on this letter. And now, aside from the rest of the content of that meeting, you're now meeting directly with your employees. And two years from now, the labor board, you know, after the litigation process says you've been unionized, is not the actual meeting with those employees a violation meeting directly with them? You know, Peter, that's another good question. And um, conceding up front that that I've not read every case, you know, on Joy Silk Mills and and how uh, the Labor Board applied Joy Silk Mills for that, you know, 2025-year period uh, when when they were applying it, Um, you know, bear in mind that when... um, a union wins an election uh, and there are no objections filed and, and the re- results of the election are otherwise not challenged, um, the LRB issues a certification of the union as the bargaining representative of the employees. And, and that certification triggers certain um, legal obligations, such as the one you mentioned, a duty of the employer to refrain from directly dealing with the employees who are in the certified unit uh, a duty to uh, bargain with the union um, over employees' terms, conditions of employment. Um, a, what we call a bar attaches to the certification that the union's right. majority status cannot be challenged for 12 months following the certification, even if every employee woke up the next day and said, oh, my God, we messed up. We didn't mean to do that. We thought yes meant no union. Can we do it over? The answer is no, not within the 12 months following certification. What, what I understand about Joy Silk Mills is that in that case, 
the board found that it was an unfair labor practice for an employer to refuse to recognize and bargain with a union where the employer committed unfair labor practices and had not articulated a good faith doubt as to the union's majority status. I don't recall from that case that there was an actual certification of the union as the employee's bargaining representative. And, you know, we talked about Gissel, right? I think in a Gissel bargaining order context, uh, maybe a certification attaches, certainly a legal duty to recognize and bargain with the union attaches. But um, that, that to me is, is something that, that I simply don't know if there's any daylight between it, it can be an unfair labor practice to refuse to, to recognize and bargain with the union, yet the NLRB hasn't certified that. Right. So this is, we're probably looking at months down the road at least, right? Months down the road. And, and further, you know, one, one thing we haven't talked about yet that I think could prove to be as vexing as any of these other, you know, uh, issues that we're trying to sort through is, is the idea of the appropriate unit. And, and what if the employer contends that the unit is not appropriate? You know, let's say it's a it's a grocery store, right? A full service grocery store with uh, with a, a meat department and a, a seafood department and a floral department. Every grocery store has a front end with the cashiers and the cash office, and then in the middle you got canned goods and 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 you know what they kind of call the grocery section. Um, you know, say the union just wants to organize the meat department, and there's there's ten you know butchers and, and apprentices in the meat department. Well, that's an appropriate unit, right? If, if they have 10 out of 10 cards in, in the meat department and they say we want to represent, you know, the meat department, um, you know, the employ an employer who, who claimed, no, that's not an appropriate unit. The only appropriate unit is the whole store probably doesn't win that argument, you know, but what if the union says, well, we have, we have the meat department and the floral department. You know, those, that seems to me to be maybe not an appropriate unit. And um, if the employer were to say, well, we don't think that's an appropriate unit, um, you know, it's got to be the whole store. Or, or each of those departments could be a separate unit maybe, but you can't just cobble together floral and meat. That doesn't make any sense. Right. You know, what, what's the mechanism for the employer to sort of vet that issue at, at the NLRB? just refuse to recognize and then litigate it through an unfair labor practice proceeding. Uh, that, that's not how they do those now. Um, file a petition, file what we call an RM petition with the board to invoke the board's sort of representational process and do it that way. That's a possibility. But, but there was really no discussion at the midwinter meeting about like the scope of the unit and what if the employer just you know, maybe they don't doubt the validity of the cards that they obtained in the group they claim to represent, but what if you think that group's not appropriate for collective bargaining? How do you vet that? It's another big question. Yeah. Well, and if, if it were up to the unions and the drafters of the PRO Act, the employer would have no say whatsoever. Right. So um, let me ask you about the, like, at those ABA meetings, when, like you have a question like that. Does anybody just stand up and shout it out or, or do you have to wait for a Q&A and do they actually answer the questions or just like ignore you? Well, you know, it, it, the, the short answer is it, it varies, right? You know, the, the panel discussions, um, you know, the lawyers who present, there's usually a, a management lawyer and a, a, a union side attorney, you know, who present opposing views on the same subject. Um, it's those sessions are usually 45 minutes to an hour. 
um, and they usually allow some time for questions at the end. And, and sometimes you get questions and sometimes you don't. You know, the eight o'clock sessions, you know, people are still waking up and, right. you know, under caffeinated and you might not get a lot of questions. The later sessions you do. Um, you know, uh, it, you know, in, in the session that I attended where, where the general counsel's office made their presentations, um, they, there really wasn't any time for questions at the end. I, I had hoped to ask a question. I didn't get a chance to ask it. Um, I was told in a subsequent session that they, that they did leave some more time for questions. So, um, and look, you know, look, it, the, the members of the board themselves cannot, it's understandable. They cannot comment on cases. And just like, a, you know, we're going to see with uh, Judge Jackson and her, you know, nomination to the Supreme Court, those hearings are going to start pretty soon. She's not going to comment on cases that might come before the court. The, the members right. of the labor right. board aren't going to comment on cases that are currently before them or, or that might come before them. And, and so it's a little unsatisfying, you know, if you're kind of hoping, you know, to, to get something useful out of it. But it's understandable why they can't. So I, I know we're coming up on a time limit, but I've got two quick topics that are kind of interrelated. And there's a question that I have with them. Um, so the board is, is taking an amicus or has, I believe, already taken amicus briefs on the independent contractor ABC test, right? The misclassification of workers. And I think the joint employer status is still in flux in terms of where they're moving with joint employer. So my question to both of those, um, and I know they're separate issues, if, and this is kind of a loaded question because I just posted it on Twitter today. So if the labor board or any of the agencies, for example, the DOL comes out with say an ABC test to define employees versus independent contractors, or they come out with a joint employer standard that um, affects franchises with say McDonald's and one of the the owners of a, a local McDonald's, right? A franchise. Would that not also apply to unions? For example, um, most unions have independent contractors, i.e. consultants and or people that they use on project to project, organizing projects, right? I'm going with the ABC thing for a second. And if you, like, if you look at a union LM and you see all these people paid $10,000, $5,000, would they not be employees under an ABC test? And then on the joint employer thing, and this goes back to, and I just thought of this last night, by the way, um, back in 2010, Craig Becker, who is the SEIU's, uh, I think he was general counsel of the SEIU, when he got put onto the labor board, you know, and they had the, um, the issue of the, uh, his recusal of certain SEIU cases. And then he refused to recuse himself based on the fact that he was the general counsel of the parent union, SEIU, and the local involved was an SEIU local, so there's no, no employer issue or no, um, no joint issue, so to speak, right? So wouldn't, wouldn't that still, wouldn't that theory apply to unions as well? I know I'm asking you to opine on something, but. <laughs> you know, I, uh, Peter, I guess my, my only, the only response I would have is, is, is you would hope you know, that, that, you know, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, right? And, you know, in, until if, if the NLRB 
elects to engage in rulemaking uh, on, on either of those topics, right? You, you are, of course, correct that um, unions themselves can be viewed as employers. I'm aware of you right. know, some unions uh, in the Northeast where who, who have unionized staff, um, you know, some of these uh, pension funds that the, the, the staff has elected to organize. Um, so, so a union can, you know, act as an employer. Unions employ employees. Unions pay, you know, we all know you know, LM2's list of employees. Um, you know, would, would it be within, you know, could, could the board, you know, the short answer to your question is, Peter, I, I, is I don't really know. I don't really know how that would play out. Um, and, and don't forget, you know, the, 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 the National Labor Relations Act itself, you know, first and foremost, it, it's designed to protect the rights of employees. You know, Section 7 protects employee rights. Section 8A codifies a number of thou shalt nots, you know, that employers cannot engage in or it's an unfair labor practice. Right. Section 8B is actually a longer list of union thou shalt nots, although, you know, on a comparative basis, there's probably at least five or six, maybe seven, eight, nine unfair labor practice charges against an employer, some employer somewhere, for every charge that's filed against a union. And to your point, um, the, the sorts of, of claims that an employer could bring against a union under the National Labor Relations Act, such as uh, unlawful secondary picketing, right? Um, or unlawful uh, picketing for a recognitional object. You know, in, in those cases, uh, in my experience anyway, you know, you usually, you can identify, you know, you, typically it's the local, right? Typically it's the local who's acting. And put it, I don't think I've ever filed a charge against the, against the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. I filed charges against lots of Teamsters locals, right? But, but yeah, so my, I guess to that end, if they're, um, if there's a joint employer status and they are both employers, you've got the local and, and this would not necessarily be a 8B type charge. This would be more of an 8A type charge. And if they're, say, for example, um, the local out in Timbuktu, Pennsylvania wants to unionize the, the workers in the, in the office there and the local officer commits a ULP and, you know, trying to bust the union of the union reps. Cause I think this happened actually with the UFCW in Pennsylvania and a teamster local as well. Would that not using the joint employer theory that the, the board is espoused with McDonald's, would that not also apply? It, yeah. If you're talking about a, 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 the union in its capacity as an employer, as an employer right? So I'm not representing them. Um, but you know, if an employee were, were to, to make such charge in that circumstance, yeah, I, I, you know, the unions, it, it, they're acting in their capacity as an employer. If an employee of a union felt like they were being oppressed and, and couldn't that they bring in the international on a, on a uh, joint employer theory, I, su I suppose they could. Okay. So, and I, we've got to wrap up in a minute and I know that, um, so here's my question with regard to that. You said earlier when we were talking about the Home Depot case that, and you just said this very quickly and I wanted to come back to it because, um, so you didn't know if 
and the employee, the aggrieved employee filed a charge or somebody did on his behalf, right? So under current law, isn't isn't it possible to have a third party totally unrelated file a charge on behalf of employees? Yes. So could that happen if you saw a union that employed a bunch of people misclassifying them as independent contractors file a charge on their behalf? Peter, I'm perpetually amazed at your creativity and, and your ability to think outside. You know, I just think about this stuff in the middle of the night because <laughs> I'm posting news articles. Uh, stop, stop drinking coffee after 9 p.m. Right, um, exactly. But, but no, I, 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 I suppose, I, I suppose you're right. Um, it, you know, if you're talking about a union in its capacity as an employer, um, and, and right, you're talking now more about standing and and who, you know, the ability of of third parties to file charges. Now, don't forget, you know, when you're the charging party, it's your burden to present evidence in support of your charge, right? So. You know, Peter List or, or Bob Nagel, you know, to the extent we had any interest in sort of running around being private enforcers of, of the act, you're still going to have to get the cooperation of, of the, the employee whose rights are actually being violated. That typically takes the form of, an, of a sworn affidavit to a board agent. Um, I, I don't know that um, there's a, a huge uh, potential for, you know, sort of private attorney general, you know, claims, as it were, being brought against unions in this theory, but... Um, but it is creative. Well, I, I think maybe the payroll records, if, if they do a true ABC test like they did AB5 out in California, I would think the payroll records might be that in itself. And the um, so I had a couple of freelancers on one of them out in California uh, on an episode a few weeks ago, and, and she was saying how the... Um, the state itself went after the employers who weren't following AB5, which is the ABC test. And it's, it was interesting. They were teeing up the uh, independent contractors because they didn't receive their 1099s and stuff. So right. Basically. Well, yeah, that's that's the state. It comes as no surprise that it's the state of California, right? right. But the state has, has you know, a legitimate enforcement interest in enforcing its own laws. I'm not sure the same, you know, again, like a, private, you know, individual, you know, or even, you know, groups, you know, trade or trade associations or, or other sort of employee groups. I'm not sure. Not Worker like centers. You. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, Bob Nagel, it is 420. And I, I know we went over a little bit uh, based on time. So I'm going to put the link up to Fox Rothschilds and anything else as well as the articles uh, that you posted, by the way. But Anything else we should advise listeners on? Just, you know, this is a, a brave new world for labor law enforcement. Um, we've talked a lot about, you know, Joyce Hill Mills and, and the expanding definition of protected concerted activity uh, and, and some other things. One thing we haven't talked about is um, the general counsel's pursuit of uh remedies, you know, beyond what, what, the, what they call the labor board remedies, what we might look at as penalties um, for, for, for employer violations of the act. Um, the, the general counsel early on expressed in one of those general counsel memos that you referenced, um, uh, you know, regions should seek what they call consequential damages 
uh, arising from an employer's um, violation of the act. And, and an easy example is if an employer fires someone in violation of the act, historically, the board has sought what they call make whole relief, which is reinstatement and back pay. Um, now, back pay can include the value of employee benefits that they didn't get during that time. If the employer, say, you know, was going to put a percentage of the employee's pay into a retirement account uh, during that time, you know, that would be included. It would be just limited to the wages, but it would tend to sort of stop right there, wages and benefits. Um, General Counsel Abruzzo has espoused that um, consequential damages, including such things as, well, if someone had to take a hardship withdrawal from a retirement account because they weren't earning, you know, their wages from the employer and they had to pay their bills, so they had to withdraw $10,000 from their retirement account and they had to pay a penalty on that, that that's on the employer now too. Possibly to include even, well, what about the, the foregone investment gains if the portfolio, you know, goes through the roof and, mm -hmm. and you know, that was $10,000 they didn't have invested and they would have made 80%, that, that might be in play. Um, late fees on credit cards, interest on credit cards, all manner of, of you know, almost anything that, that, that an employee could sort of put a dollar sign on, but for my unlawful termination, I wouldn't have incurred that expense, um, could be in that, that broad bucket of consequential damages. Um, there was discussion at the meeting about um, emotional distress damages. Um, that, that came more from one of the union side practitioners, but the notion that, you know, there's nothing in the statute that says the board can't award emotional distress damages. And just because they never have the before doesn't mean they can't. So I think, you know, that's an issue that that's, you know, we're going to see um, already um, in, in cases you've seen um, the, the, the board not just request, but get um, previously uh, novel remedies such as um, uh, what they call notice readings, typically in an unfair labor practice right. case, whether it's a settlement or a, or a, or a loss at an administrative law judge, the employer will have to post a notice to employees advising them of their rights and promising not to violate their rights and, and do again whatever it was found to have done in the case. Um, you know, five years ago, management was twisting its hands about being required to email those notices to employees. Now, in some cases, management has to read them to employees in a, in a sort of a, a, you know, struggle session, you know, convened, you know, at the order of the NLRB and an NLRB uh, agent would, would, you know, come and, and observe the reading or, or if the employer refused, I think the NLRB agent could read it themselves. I think there's a, frankly, a, a, an issue there about compelling an employer to read that notice. I know I've had that conversation with a couple of my colleagues before and whether the board can actually do that. Um, apology letters to employees who have been fired. Um, there's a case involving Amazon uh, right now, pretty high profile case out of Staten Island. Um, that case uh, was tried to an administrative law judge last year. Parties filed post-hearing briefs uh, earlier this month. And uh, in that case uh, where Amazon is alleged to have unlawfully fired uh, someone who the board contends was engaged in protected concerted activity, um, the board wants all of what I've just described, uh, an apology letter, a notice reading, uh, training of managers and supervisors on National Labor Relations Act compliance. That one was uh, a weird one. Yeah. I mean, that's the full Monty. I mean, that's, you know, very aggressive um, 
you know, and, and, and creative in a bad way, um, novel uh, remedies that, that are being sought here. Um, this general counsel has made clear, you know, she's, she's going to push the envelope. She's going, she, she, she's willing to go further than her predecessors have uh, in pursuit of, of employers who, who are found to violate the act. Um, so that's, I think that was, that was the one where they, um, she ordered that the consultants all go also go through training, right? Uh, I think that's part of the, I think that's on the menu, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was kind of laughed when I saw that. It's like, wow. Okay. <laughs> I've only been doing this 25 years. I need to go back to school. And we all need, we all could use a refresher, right? Um, yeah. Should be on our own terms though, Peter should be on our own terms. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think just then, you know, sort of the, 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 and you already mentioned, you know, um, interim injunctive relief under section 10 J she's made very clear that that's something she thinks that, that they need to pursue uh, more aggressively and more frequently than they have in the past. Right. So it's really just, you know, like pedal to the metal on, on enforcement against employers. I haven't seen any general counsel memos addressed to union unfair labor practices. And, and that really didn't come up at all. No, you probably won't at, either. At the midwinter meeting. <laughs> so, but, but in terms of uh, pursuing employer unfair labor practices, um, the rod shall not be spared. Right. Well, Mr. Nagel, on that note, I've got to jump off and onto a call, but I, I really appreciate you coming on today. I know we got started a little bit late, but I think these um, the more we have these kind of discussions and the more I could do episodes like this, it's kind of you need to hear it, you need to hear it. And it's I've done several on backdoor card check, and I don't know that it's getting out there enough, but it's coming. Uh, I'm afraid you're right, Peter. Uh, thanks for the time and the conversation as always, uh, found it very stimulating and I hope your listeners do too. Thank you, sir. I'll talk to you soon. All right, Peter, take good care. Bye. -bye. You are listening to labor relations radio. So that was Bob Nagel with the law firm Fox Rothschild. And as always, I'm going to leave, leave the link to his article as well as his bio under the audio portion of this episode of labor relations radio. And as you, you can tell by listening, there is a lot of stuff happening in Washington, D.C. or coming out of Washington, D.C. right now from the National Labor Relations Board and other agencies, primarily the NLRB right now. But if you're an employer or involved with human resources and you want to reach out to Bob, you can do so directly. Um, I'm sure he'd be glad to hear from you. In addition to that, if you're... An attorney on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, or somebody who has different opinions and you want to reach out to us, feel free to do so under the audio portion of this episode in the comments section on Twitter at Workplace Report, uh, or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. And that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. Thanks for listening. to Labor Relations Radio.